Hello and welcome to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. I'm Aaron Salvato. I'm here with my co-host Brian Higgins. And today we have a very special guest. With us today is Professor Gary Brashears from Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. Gary's a guy who we just think is a brilliant thinker. He loves Jesus. He's got a huge pastoral heart. And so today we wanted to hit him with all of our burning questions about salvation. Things like what actually is salvation? What happens when somebody gets saved? Can you lose your salvation? It's going to be a great conversation. All this and more on today's episode of the Good Lion Podcast. We're here with Gary Brashears from Western Seminary. How's it going, Gary? Going very well. We uh, have had two days of summer here in Portland, and we're over that now, and I'm very glad for that. Awesome. Awesome. How are summers in Portland? Well, it was almost 100 degrees one day. Oh, that's... It was ugly. That's no fun. Ugly. Ugly. I mean, it was dry and warm and all those things we Portlanders hate. (laughs) (laughs) Go back to cloudy and a little bit of rain today. Um, Well, uh, you've, you've met me over email. And then this is Brian Higgins. Um, hey, Brian. Good to meet you, Gary. Brian's our editor-in-chief over at Good Lion. And uh, Gary, why don't you give us some background on yourself and just who you are? We, we, we know you from Western Seminary and the Bible Project and things like that, but um, I'd love to just know a little bit and for our listeners your background and just your heart for ministry. Well, I was born in a home, uh, multi-generational Anabaptist Church of the Brethren. Uh, my home church and where I will be gathered to my father's is Spring Branch Church of the Brethren in what used to be Avery, Missouri, 60 miles north of Springfield. And the Brethren Anabaptist is my theological home, uh, in many ways my emotional home. Uh, plain and pacifist is written in my genes, literally, uh, and uh, so I, I grew up, we went back to Albuquerque where I was born and where there's a fundamentalist church there. And that's where I rejected Christianity, or I thought I did. Hmm. I was actually rejecting fundamentalism, I found out years later, because uh, I started asking some questions, real questions, and that was absolutely not allowed. Hmm. Uh, so I checked out, uh, it was near suicide just because I'm so intense. Uh, and that's when... Uh, new pastor's daughter, Kathy Thompson Cole. Now, uh, I tried my questions on her. Instead of freaking out, she said, well, gosh, let's talk about that and turned me on to her dad who turned me into C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis is wrestling brilliantly with the questions I was wrestling with. I didn't agree with his answers exactly, but at least he was wrestling with them. And they began a journey. I was connected back to Jesus driving down Rio Grande Boulevard in my 1962 Austin Healy Sprite, uh, and I've been following him seriously ever since. Uh, Sharon and I got married in 1968. We were went to the Philippines a year later, got involved, going to Faith Academy, got involved in church planning, international ministry, decided that uh, this might be a good thing to do for life, went to seminary, grad school, headed back to the Philippines, and God interrupted my life again and said, go to Western Seminary. This is 1979. I said, not a chance. I know that fundamentalist, more Dallas than Dallas nonsense up there. I want nothing to do with it. God said, in effect, and I, okay. So I came up here 10 years, get my kids through school. Uh, 40 years later, I'm still here. Uh, so I, I teach a lot of stuff, uh, but my my heart of my calling is pastor of pastors these days, and that's what consumes me. But I'm still keenly, keenly, keenly interested in those difficult questions. Whether we have answers or not is a different thing. We've got to deal with the questions realistically and biblically. Mm, that's that's fantastic. And I love that heart that you have because I was actually pulling up an old lecture you gave, I think from 1996, and you said basically the same thing. Like you, you mentioned that people ask you, is your goal to produce theological experts? And you were saying that's a part of it, but discipleship is the main thing. You want to produce yep. disciples. Yep. So I love that. You know, another thing you said was your past trying to get through that time period of having questions and doubts and frustrations and not feeling like those things were being addressed. That's right. totally the heart of this podcast. Um, yep. Brian, I mean, maybe you could share with Gary just uh, what this podcast is and what it tries to do. 
Well, yeah, part of what we're we're looking to be is just jumping into exactly what that. So I, I guess I'll start with this. Um, one of the things I found very interesting in that story is how much you still identify by that moment of doubt, how pivotal that still rings true in your mind. And I think for so many people, they're they're still in that doubting part of the story and they haven't seen the bit that comes next. And, you know, talking about that rejecting fundamentalism or rejecting the the fear that would come up from people saying, oh, you can't ask those questions here. We want to be the place where you can ask those questions. And so yeah. to to watch you have come through that season to reach the other side of doubt, uh, but to still so strongly have it in your mind we still need to wrestle through these things. And and I love that even if we don't have the answers, we need to keep asking the questions because yep. that keeps us real. That keeps us honest. That keeps us moving towards Jesus. And Jesus never was angry at a person who asked a question. So mm. we love just diving into, hey, we don't really know where this is going to lead us, but we know that this is real. It's a meaningful question. And we want to watch God meet us in the wrestling and show us more of himself. Mm. Let me do a shout out to my friend Dominic Don's new book, When Faith Fails. Mm. Uh, It's just a brilliant book recounting his own journey through doubt. And there are different kinds of questions. One question is seeking understanding, Mm. which is I'm all for whatever worldview you're coming from. The other is seeking exit. Mm. And a a question that's seeking exit, seeking a reason to toss things away, I just think is not a a sincere question. Mm. And the difference is those Mm. two is huge because I deal with a lot of people they don't like Christianity, for example, because they don't like, say, the moral stand toward gay folk or something. Mm. So they're looking for reasons to kick it out. And uh, I think, you know, following Jesus, look at Jesus. Who in the world is this guy and what's he want for me? That's the fundamental question. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Can I ask what some of those questions were that you were wrestling through that, like, rang the strongest in that period of doubt? Oh, yeah, that's good. I, I, I was a math and science guy. Uh, and I was in you know, sophomore in high school taking geometry, and everything is proved. You start with axioms, you do logic, you prove everything. It's amazing. Thessalonians five twenty one, I think it is, says test or prove all things, hold fast that which is good in the King James. Hmm. And so I said, oh, let's do that. So I began right off the bat with, uh, uh, why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? I mean, it's a book. I'd read a lot. I'd read all of it, actually. Uh, It was full of strange things, and things are hard to understand, and ancient worldview and such. Why do you believe this is the Word of God? That was a fundamental question. Then why do you believe Jesus is God Mm. rather than just an exemplary human being? And then, well, why do you believe there's a God at all? Because I was deep in the science, which is basically naturalistic. I was never wrestling with the morality of it. My my questions were not so much moral, because I, I did and do believe the basic morality of Christianity is true and good. Uh, many others have that. It's, it's not been my particular question. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. great question to ask, and I'm so glad that you're available to help people with these questions. And when we were talking on the phone, I just love, you know, to the the heart to say, because you said to me, you're like, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't guarantee I'll have all the answers, but I'll definitely. I can guarantee I won't have all the answers. (laughs) Exactly. And that's important, I think, for Christians to be able to admit that it's not about being so certain of every single thing, but it is about, we are certain of Jesus, and we know that he's willing to engage with us in our doubts and questions. And this episode, so this isn't like, you know, we went and scoured around and asked people, what are your questions? These are, these are actually questions that we have, like me and Brian, questions that we've been asking yep. specifically about salvation. And the, I titled this the mechanics of salvation or the nuts and bolts of salvation. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. a good term, but something I've wondered, you know, as someone who's grown up in the church and just heard very simple ideas about salvation I just tend to overthink things and overcomplicate things. And so I've got all these questions swimming in my head of like, what actually is salvation? Like, what's, what's going on? My first question, I'm going to look at my notes, is I would just ask you, <laughs> what is happening behind the scenes of salvation? Like, what happens in the spiritual realm when someone experiences salvation? What happens in the physical realm? What What is going on when somebody actually comes to being saved? Uh, if I can just use biblical metaphors to begin with, uh, Genesis 3 has a story of Eve and Adam uh, 
betraying the relationship with God because hmm. it's a trust relationship. And the serpent suggests to Eve, maybe you can't trust this God guy. Uh, and she uh, checks out the fruit. She looks at the fruit. She sees it from her own perspective hmm. and then takes it. And that see take pattern is the sin pattern. And what that does when they betray that relationship with God, uh, it gets them separated from the tree of life, which is what I would call spiritual death. Hmm. And because that relationship is broken by betrayal, and same is true today in marriages and such, relationships are broken by betrayal, that relationship has to be restored. And so that the, the fundamental thing that happens in salvation uh, is that rest- restoration, that relationship, gaining access to the tree of life in the biblical metaphor. Hmm. Another metaphor is that we are now in league with the serpent, so we're in the dominion of darkness as a kingdom place, and the two fundamental kingdoms are the kingdom of darkness. This is Colossians one twelve. So you're uh, Colossians one thirteen. <clears throat> there's the dominion of darkness with Satan as head, and then there's the kingdom of light uh, with Jesus as head, Messiah. Hmm. And we need to be transferred from darkness to light. And that's a fundamental metaphor that runs all through Scripture, and that's where you run into what we call the, uh, the triumph theme of atonement, or some call it the Christus Victor, hmm. uh, where we are released from the authority of the serpent and brought back into the kingdom of light. Hmm. So it's a, my fundamental metaphor uh, for initial salvation is relational. And that ties in with the idea of righteousness, right? Like the righteousness, not just being a list of, you know, if you're going to be righteous, you're going to do all these right things, but more so like a right relationship with God. Like salvation restores righteousness. You know, we're starting football season and my son is a huge, huge, huge Kansas City Chiefs fan. Huge. <laughs> season tickets. I get to see football games with him. It's amazing. We went to see a game in Seattle last year, the last game of the year. Uh, and I've, my granddaughter's husband at that point worked for Pete Carroll as his personal assistant. And the, uh, so you've got two quarterbacks who are both Christians mm-hmm. on the two teams, two really good teams are playing in Seattle. Everyone around us is for Seattle. We've got red jackets on and we kind of stand out. Uh, but the thing that I'm looking at when I watch Russell Lewis make an incredible play uh, do I say he made a good play? Mm. And the answer is, yeah, but he's on the wrong team. And that's the thing that I think is fundamental is when you're doing righteous things, but right. you're on the wrong team, you're adding up points for the bad guys, so to speak. Yeah, mm. that makes sense. Um, yeah, definitely. See, that's where I disagree with a, with a lot of folk that end up saying, well, if you're not a Christian, you can't do good things. Hmm. And my response is, yeah, absolutely, you can do good things. They just score for the wrong team. Yeah. No. Okay. That makes sense. Can I ask, is this... You can ask anything. (laughs) (laughs) This is just something that's swimming around my mind, a metaphor, because I feel like metaphor is a tool that we have to try to explain these complex things going on in the spiritual realm, because we can't know exactly like how to define it i guess but um you know i think of like a fish in water and a fish when it's in water that's the atmosphere it can survive in when it's outside of the water it's dying so you know when i picture adam and eve being made in the garden of eden i picture you know they're in the water and then when they commit that first sin all of a sudden they're you know they're outside of the water and they're gasping and flopping around and dying and then salvation is then the the water and fish relationship being restored and now they're back in the atmosphere and they can live right that's just i mean i don't know if that makes sense i I like that analogy it really does that gives that one dimension very well Hmm. uh the other dimension is uh that's we technically call that the justification piece Hmm. so we are the two key aspects of justification are forgiveness and restoration of relationship. Mm. Mm. So forgiveness and restoration of relationship are the two key things in justification. That's one piece that happens initially. The other piece is we are struggling with wrong desires. Mm. Uh, they call it depravity. 
I just call it cussedness. That's what we call it back in Missouri. <laughs> and everybody's got a cussed side to them, mm. and they do really bad things and, and actually do things they know are bad mm. a lot of times. Uh, so we need help on that side too. And that's where the other fundamental dimension is what's called new birth or new creation or regeneration. There are different terms for it. Mm. But at new birth, I think what happens is I get two things. I get the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is a new power source, mm. and mm. I get a new set of fundamental desires. That's the new heart, biblically. Right. And I get a new community, the community of, of gracious, spirit-empowered people. Mm. So those things come up. So I not only have uh, acceptance and forgiveness, it, vital, that's going into the water, as you're talking about with your fish analogy, mm. but uh, I get a I get a deep change of character. My fundamental desires change. Mm. I've got lots of bad desires around still. Mm. That, that's a key factor at the basics of salvation. I get, I, I do get the forgiveness and acceptance, new family membership, uh, but I also get new set of desires and a new power, the Holy Spirit and a new community. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. So th- that's a narrative I remember hearing a lot as a kid. I grew up in a church. And when I heard about this idea of the Holy Spirit living within me, I remember being young and kind of looking around my body and being like, I wonder what part he's in now. And like, it, it's, it was such a confusing thing thinking, so I'm a new creation, but I look at myself and I'm, I'm still generally me. So how much of that new creation is actually physical and how much of that is just what you're talking about of the relationship change makes you a member of a new team and therefore things are totally different? That's a great question. Uh, It is relational and I think that's a fundamental thing as I now am in relationship with God, in relationship with the other believers in Jesus. I think that's always a community thing. But I do think there's, it's not a physical change. Just like uh, when I think of what a person is, a person is both material and immaterial in an interacting duality. And the part that's changed by the power of the Holy Spirit is on that immaterial side. And I think there's a genuine, real power at that point. Uh, it's it's like I'm sitting with a computer right now uh, that's on battery power. <laughs> and uh, I just realized that when I started this, I forgot to plug the thing in. So we'll hope it may, I may have to take a break here in a bit and plug in. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. The, uh, what happens with the power of the Holy Spirit is in effect we're plugging into the wall hmm. and it does it's not a different kind what well, is a different kind of power at one level but what it does it adds to the power that's already in the computer so and it's not a discernible thing exactly uh, but it's a real power it seems to me that uh, something like that is a kind of metaphor that i think makes some sense of what's happening here Yeah, and it makes sense along with our experiences, because I think each one of us can say we've had moments where we feel like we've actually experienced that power, where it's like, there's something beyond me and myself right now happening that is making a difference in my life, and I feel this guidance from God and this power from God. Hmm. Yeah, there are lots of contraries around these things, but I'm I'm a continuationist. I think the Holy Spirit continues to work and speak. And I know when I reconnected with the Lord there when I was 18, and I began doing uh, prayer, because I figured that's a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. And and what I found was I was getting not only direction and information, if you will, revelation from God, there was a, there was a new impetus to become more a person of integrity in my relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the Holy Spirit at work in me. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, the next question I would move to would be, so the simple gospel that we all hear growing up is salvation is as simple as you hear the gospel, you believe it, you weren't saved, now you are. Is it that simple? If, you know, should, we, should we focus on that? Should we keep it that simple? Or are we undercomplicating it? I, what do you think? <laughs> I think that's undercomplicating it. Okay. But it, there, there's a truth to that, because what we tend to do is we make Paul on the road to Damascus our metaphor of, of salvation. Hmm. You know, he's set off to kill Jews. Jesus shows up, has a chat with him. Three days later, he's baptized, and he's a total follower of Jesus. And some people have that kind of dramatic change that's basic and instantaneous type thing. Right. Uh, I also look at C.S. Lewis, 
you know, and his change went from being an atheist to being a theist uh, to being a Christian. Hmm. And those were, happened over a period of years with all kinds of struggle involved with that. So I think there's a lot of different metaphors about how you come to be uh, a follower of Jesus. I don't think there's one. I do think there's a moment in which you are switched from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light. Uh, when you go from be, to becoming a, a true child of God, but I don't. In many cases, I don't think that's a discernible thing. I think in my uh, relationship with Sherry, my pretty wife, there was a moment in front of a preacher when he looked at me and said, Gary, will you love, honor, and obey Sherry? And I said, I will. Uh, Sherry said, thank you. And the preacher said, amen. And I've been doing that for 50 plus years now. Mm. Uh, there's a point, there's a, there's a wedding moment in right. many relationships, but, and that's a simple gospel, if you will, for a lot of other people, uh, in, a, in a certain sense, they don't go through a wedding. They just move that relationship, and first thing you know, they're together and totally committed to each other, what we used to call common law marriage. Hmm. By the way, I'm totally in favor of weddings. <laughs> so, are, like, would you agree, or would you agree with kind of the very generic sense statement of salvation being based on belief? Like, what is the thing that crosses you over from death into life? What gets you through the yeah. door? Okay, let me see if I can get myself crucified here. Uh, <laughs> the word belief is a totally inadequate word. Mm. Uh, and that, that's the problem with that formula, uh, because I, I think it's a lot more than that. James says the demons believe in Jesus, mm. uh, and they do. I mean, they seriously believe. They're even terrified of him. Mm. Uh, and so I don't like the term believe by itself. Mm -hmm. uh, the the term that I tend to use is I actually put it in dimensions. Uh, the 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 faith that saves uh, is uh, there is a uh, commitment of loyalty. There's a commitment of truth or sorry of trust. Uh, and I and I think that's the better words would be I I am trusting Jesus and I'm loyal to him. I'm committed him among the various gods of this world. Mm. Uh, Matthew Bates has a little book with a terrible title, but the book is good. It's called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Right. Mm. And what he's arguing correctly is the Pistis Word Group is a lot more than just intellectual understanding. It's not less, but it's a lot more than that. And he focuses on allegiance. I don't think it's allegiance alone, but I do think allegiance is a key part of that. I've got to yeah. trust that Jesus is the Lord, and he has my best interest in mind without understanding about what all it means. And I've got to say, okay, I'm with you, Jesus, just like I did when I said to Sherry, I'm with you, babe. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, the allegiance concept makes a lot of sense. Brian, were you going to say something? Yeah, just that it, it seems like that just matches up with with church experience because it, it's a hard balance to have because there have been people that I've known and that I've ministered to where they have claimed belief in Jesus and then they live a life that entirely denies him. Right. And it, it's very difficult pastorally to, because there's part of me that says, I need to push this person towards greater allegiance, like we're saying, and, and I would try to do that. But then in the back of my head, I'm thinking, well, wait, am I am I judging something that maybe I'm not going to be able to see? And, you know, I, I want to have the, for lack of a better term, the, the right ammo to come to them and to say, hey, here's where I believe you're at and here's where you need to be. But without coming at it at this, hey, I can say by your lifestyle, you are not following Jesus. Therefore, you may not be saved. Like, it's such a difficult balance pastorally. Like, how do you go about that kind of circumstance? Mm -hmm. That boy, that you're right, spot on the question there. Uh, <clears throat> what I do is when I'm seeing somebody whose life does not match the claims of Jesus and is against the claims of Jesus, what I do at that point is say something is wrong here. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm looking here at Luke 6, 46, or 45. The good person out of the treasure, his heart produces good. The evil mm. person the evil treasure produces evil. For his mouth speaks what fills his heart. And then he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? Mm. Everyone who comes to me and listens to my voice, puts him in practice, I'll show what he's like in the house. In 1 John 3, it's talking about the person who is born of God does not sin. Mm. And I think that new heart person 
doesn't sin because I want to follow the way of Jesus. And when somebody at their deepest desires and consistent pattern is not following the way of Jesus, something is wrong. It may be that they never had that life connection with Jesus. It may be that they've just got misunderstandings or they've got unresolved trauma or who knows what. But something is wrong. And I will say that pastorally and do that regularly. Yeah. No, that's good. I think the thing I struggle with, because in the church tradition I grew up in, the view of salvation was basically one I thought was like a very generous view in the sense that uh, we would always say things like, you know, when man, when we get to heaven, there's going to be people there that you do you don't expect to be there. You know, people that um, you know you would have looked at their life and thought, oh, they're a lost cause. Um, it's kind of this idea that all that is needed is just a simple belief in Jesus. And yes, someone might struggle and maybe even backslide to the point where you would look at them and think, you know, oh, this person doesn't seem like they're in allegiance to Christ at all. But because they're still holding on to that belief, that simple belief is what is necessary for salvation. And I. I've even heard some pastors say, you know, there's going to be people who uh, make it into heaven, you know, by the skin of their teeth, you know, just like barely hanging on, you know. And I mean, what do you think of those perspectives? I, my major kickback on that is for most people, it's I was there when he prayed the prayer. Mm. And I was I was sitting on the bed beside my son when he prayed the prayer at eight years old. He's lived like the devil since then, but I was there when he prayed the prayer. I know he's saved. Mm. And, and scripture gives me an opposite perspective on that. Just because somebody's had an emotional moment or has responded to family pressure or something like that and has prayed the prayer, that does not mean they have a life connection with Jesus necessarily. That is actually a true legalism. Mm. That if mm. you paid the prayer and if you say the right words, then you're saved and it's a lot more than words so i'm i'm hearing in the back of my mind the the friends that i know that are like but wait a second isn't it just the prayer like i'm hearing that come up and the question i would have is um so the the thief on the cross that's that's next to jesus he in essence it it he, he gets used in a lot of times as the example of well hey he just prayed the prayer and it seems like he was good um what was what would you say was different about that encounter as opposed to just he prayed when he was eight and he's been horrible since then, but he prayed. <laughs> well, I'll state the obvious thing. He's like hanging on a cross. He's going to be dead in an agonizing way. And he does cry out to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Uh, and I certainly know people who have had a very simple response. Uh, and I'm not going to say that isn't enough. But what happened is I look at the other disciples and Jesus says to them, leave your nets and follow me. Hmm. And Judas, uh, you know, there's a something of a debate whether Judas is actually saved or not. But here's a guy who was in the crowd, but he wasn't living the life of the disciple, the other said. Hmm. And so here's a guy in the most innermost circle who uh, I think is in hell. Hmm. Uh, so there's there's more than just a prayer uh, it's uh, it's it's more than just a prayer. Uh, so, and that's where I think uh, it's actually the people who have that view has a similar view to Muslims who believe if you say the Shadi, uh, you know, there's one uh, one God Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And of course, you have to say it in Arabic that that prayer makes you a Muslim. That makes and there are a lot of people say if I say a prayer. Lord Jesus, I've sinned. I want you to be my savior. That just expressing those words, and it's not. It's a relational thing. It's an allegiance thing. It's a trust thing. And that's where I think the word uh, belief understates things seriously. Right. Right. Actually, the conversionist model, where I try to make a, an emotional context mm. where somebody responds and walks down and uh, cries and shakes the preacher's hand, signs his Bible, and prays a prayer. Mm. None of those are in scripture. It's come follow me. Okay, so on that, so we know, I think we would agree, you know, the gospel is not a works-based thing. It's a grace-based thing. Works are important because they are, it's the fruit that's showing that the tree actually is a fruit tree. Um, But my question, I think, on that would be, so is the kind of key to all of this, like the thing that ties it together for salvation. It's not necessarily works, it's allegiance, and and by that it's the heart. So it all kind of, in, in my mind at least, you know, I'm, I'm open to your 
ideas and correction on this, but I think it all revolves around where the heart, the heart posture of the person actually is. Yep. So, you know, if you have somebody who is sitting in church and they, you know, so the pastor is talking about hell and they're like, well, I don't want to go there. And, you know, they just say a prayer thinking, you know, this is fire insurance, but then there's no engagement with Christ for the rest of their life, you know, and, and they're just thinking, yeah, I can do whatever I want. And I'm fine right. because I said that prayer that one time maybe we would not consider that person a part of the Christian faith, but then somebody who genuinely carries in them in their heart, this faith where it's like Jesus is Lord and, and, and he's my master. But let's just say that person is in a, a time period of the life where they're really wrestling with sin. You know, maybe they used to be drug addicted and they had a season of being fine, but now they're back on it, you know, and they're giving into it and their lifestyle is not one that we would look at and think this is a lifestyle of discipleship, but in, in their heart, there's still this like, Jesus is Lord. I, I love him. I don't want to be doing these things. Please help me, Lord. And there's this struggle and battle. Would we consider that person, even though they're not you know, we would look at them and just judge them by outward appearances as not being in the faith. If if that exists in their heart, is that Christian faith? Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would agree with both of your metaphors there. I would say in the second person, I would approach that person pastorally and say, what's going on? Cause something's wrong here. Right. Uh, <clears throat> the, the biblical metaphor is adoption. And Sharon, I adopted Cindy. Uh, she was an adult when we adopted her and it was strictly a work of grace. There, she did not bring any positives to our family uh, in their beginning days. Uh, and when so we invited her to be a part of her household. Uh, she she was still doing some really bad stuff and not trusting and angry and all those things. And we asked her to move in with us. She was the first and not the last, but she's the only one that we've actually adopted. And what I would say there is that that was an act of pure grace, mm. uh, undeserved, but she had to accept it. She had to pack her stuff up from her other apartment and move into our house. Mm. And she could have moved in with an attitude that this is just another temporary place like in my other foster care systems. Mm. And she could have been in the house, but not part of the house. And that's that metaphor gets some of the adopt or that metaphor gets some of the salvation things. You can move into the house, become part of the church, become part of Bible studies, those kinds of stuff. But it's just another foster care system, and you're looking for a way out, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Uh, but the, from the conversion perspective, I think that it, it God comes. My understanding, God comes to every single person and says, uh, "Will you accept my free gift of family membership and healing and forgiveness?" Right. And the person, I think every person has a spirit-empowered ability to say yes to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's resistible, however. That's why I'm a Calmanian, not a Calvinist. Right. <laughs> uh, but I think God touches every single human heart. Sometimes he touches them really hard, and like Paul, and they say yes because God won't allow any other answer. Mm. Uh, but I think you do have to say yes, and I think you can say no. And the, and the metaphor that happens in Scripture, there are people living in the house who are not a part of the family. Mm-hmm. Bringing up that term Calminian, which I, I love so much, um, in a lot of conversations about that stance and about where you fall in that spectrum, there's we a lot of people... Ha- we should have him define that stance first. For yeah, the people that, that's a good place to start. Let's do and that. Then you, okay. And then you keep going, Brian. Yeah. yeah. Calminian is the idea God works with different people in different ways. If I'm a Calvinist, then I think everybody who goes to heaven is is appointed by God, and they did not make the choice God did. And God says, come, and they come because they have to. It's effectual grace. I think that's true some of the time. Hmm. Uh, Armenians typically say God uh, empowers people with what's called prevenient grace, where they can say yes, but don't have to. Hmm. And from the Armenian perspective, God never forces anybody. And my Calminian spot is God works in different ways with different people. Sometimes he slams you to the ground and drags you home. Other times he said, will you accept my free gift of salvation, but allows you to say no. So I, the heart of it is God works in different ways with different people. And I think we see that clearly in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's great. So, um, and, and thinking about the, the debate that goes on between a Calvinist camp and an Arminian camp, um, I, I'm... 
I've begun working at a Bible college recently, and sometimes Calvinist gets thrown around the way that people throw around like, oh, I'm a fan of European soccer. It's like a way of saying, <laughs> hey, I'm intellectual, like think that I'm interesting. Yeah. And and as I'm talking, and not not to look down on, on people who believe that genuinely, that's I'm not trying to make a theological statement there. You're, you're not but, looking down on their belief, you're just looking down on the, the idea of touting yourself as a yeah, intellectual ex- person. Exactly. And yeah. and Yeah, it's true. And many Calvinists are because I'm I'm an academic intellectual elite and we have the system kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. And and sometimes whenever I'm in some of those conversations, the moment I throw out the idea of free will at all, they're like, oh, so you're fully Arminian and that's all that you believe. <laughs> yeah. Um how do you kind of show people that that balance really is there in scripture and that the middle ground isn't coming from a Calvary background. Sometimes when we try to say we're a middle ground position on the Calvinism and Arminianism debate, people say, Oh, so you haven't really thought about it. And and can I piggyback on the question really quick? The, The thing I would add to that is how do you also deal with when you bring up the will of man, people who are more from the reformed background treating you like, you have a very low view of God's sovereignty and yeah. I, well, I just actually, what I do is open my Bible and make them read the Bible. (laughs) That's kind of a sarcastic response, but it's actually what I do. Uh, And that's what, I started on the Calvinist side of things. That's what I've been taught all through seminary and grad school. Uh, And it was, it's actually interacting with scripture that made the difference. On the free will thing, well, free will and sovereign are, you have to understand there are different definitions of those terms. Mm. And that's the first clarification that's so important. Uh, free will, when we say that, we typically mean you can choose between A and B, and there's no determinative factor that says which one you will necessarily choose. That's the Arminian definition. The Calvinist definition of free will is I do what I want to do. It doesn't mean I can necessarily do something different than what I actually do. Hmm. So hmm. having those that's, uh, that's, uh, those two uh, definitions of freedom or free will, people tend to immediately go to the Arminian definition of freedom. If it's a free decision, I can do A or B, and there's no determining factor going into that choice. Of course, lots of choices are not free. The term sovereign can be uh, the Calvinist sovereign. I always said because I had a Dutch Calvinist friend back there that he could, he believed it so strongly he could never say it straight. He had to furrow his brow and quiver his lip and speak it from his splegma. <laughs> and it's like a sarcastic thing there. But that is that God controls every detail and nothing happens apart from his decreed will. <laughs> well, what's the Armenian definition of sovereign is that God does what he wants when he wants, gives account to nobody, and everybody does it under his judgeship. But there are things that happen that are against God's will in every sense. Mm. And the thing is, those two definitions, you have to justify the definition. You can't say, don't you believe God is sovereign, because he may be sovereign or sovereign. You've got to justify biblically, which is the right definition of that term. And the funny thing is, the term sovereign is never used in Scripture. Mm. Mm. Uh, It's a theological construction, and you have to show, and I think I can show you biblically, stuff that happens against God's will in every sense. Right. The Israelites, uh, the Jude people in Judea, sacrificing their children to Moloch, God says, that is not me, in very strong terms in Jeremiah 32, for example. And I think he's saying, that is not me. To say that's his determined course of action to glorify himself, I think the Bible says exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. So, the whole idea of, is God sovereign? Yes, he is. What do you mean by that is the question. Absolutely, God is sovereign. King, everybody gives an answer to him. He gives an answer to nobody. Uh, and there are times I think he comes in and says, you will do it this way, hmm. and there's no options given. Hmm. So, that's the thing. On the freedom thing, I just take people to Romans chapter 2. It's like the Calvinistic answer book, hmm. except that Calvinists tend not to read Romans 2, or I think misread it. Right. God's uh, God's compassion, his goodness, his kindness, it's usually translated. God's kindness leads everyone to repentance. Some say no, verses 5 and 6, and they inherit his wrath. Mm. Some say yes, verse 7, and they get his eternal life. Mm. I think that's a place where God's kindness is leading, 
and people can say yes or no to the same leading. So I think the mm. doctrine of God touching people with a resistible way is right there in the book of Romans. Can, I just want to reemphasize something you said for the listeners. So you were talking about in Romans 2, um, God's kindness, that's what you said, God's kindness, yeah. right? It draws everyone, but then yes. some receive it and then some reject. And that ties in right with um, the prophecies about the Son of Man being lifted up and drawing all men to himself. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not a universalist yeah. view of that. It's it's the drawing right. that happens, but then there needs to be a response to the drawing. That's correct. Hmm. Okay. And the, if you look at the draw in John six forty four and John twelve thirty two that you just quoted, uh, many say, well, that's a that's a dragging. And if you do, if you look that word up, helco is the word. If you look it up, mm. you'll find that it can mean anything from drag to woo in the semantic domain of that particular mm. word. And the Calvinists read that as exclusively drag, and I think they misread it at that point. And it makes John twelve thirty two very hard to deal with because it says, "I will draw all people to myself." Right. And I think they actually meant that. Mm. That makes sense. I think we should do an entire nice episode on this topic with you sometime. We'll just we'll give it a clickbait title: Gary Brashear solves Calvinism and Arminianism. Great. <laughs> just get everybody mad at us. On, mm-hmm. on. Um, I can. I want to go back to salvation, and I, yeah. I I have prepared a strange little chart. If I can share it with you guys, okay. Let me see. So you'll have to. Uh, yep. Can you guys see yep. it? Yep. Mm-hmm. So you have to excuse the graphics. Uh, I was a youth pastor, so these are from video games because that's how my brain works. But um, so I've I've got this circle of salvation, and there's people yep. outside of it. So we talked about this already, and this is for the listeners. This will be a good refresher of what we talked about. But there was this simple gospel theory. There's the necessities for salvation: hearing the gospel, believing it's true, praying to accept Jesus. If you believe, you're inside the circle. If you reject, you're outside of it. So now we're getting into like kind of, this is just, again, I, I wouldn't even say this is like what I believe or this is just what I'm wrestling with. And these aren't like like defined um, theories. These are just my own theories of what's going on. So this would be like a two level of salvation theory. So it's belief in Jesus is all that's needed to be saved. However, there are uh, nominal Christians, which we'd call or, or John Piper would call, you know, save soul, wasted life. Um, and there are um, there are actual Christ followers. Um, both are saved, but only one lives life to the fullest. A great goal of pastors is to help nominal Christians become true followers of Christ and disciples. So inside the circle of salvation, you would have on one side actual Christ followers. They're going to be in the new heaven, new earth. They're, you know, the fish that's been brought back into the stream. They'll experience power and connection with God, and they'll be used for kingdom purposes in this life. And so people who believe Jesus is Lord, they're surrendered, they spend time with God. And it's not just out of religious duty, but friendship with God. Um, they follow the teachings of Jesus. They admit their sin is wrong. They make an effort to repent. They pray. They, they have love, obedience. But then on the other side, you've got those who believe. They prayed to receive Christ. They'll you know, be in the new heaven and earth. They'll they'll struggle. They'll be unfulfilled in this life. They'll, they won't be very close to God. And maybe this is someone with unrepentant pride, racism, constantly getting drunk or stealing, sexually immoral, living in sin, um, refusing to admit that their sin is wrong. They ignore some of the teachings of Jesus. So do you think this dichotomy exists in any shape? Like, or does this not exist at all in your mind? The only difference I'd make is if you have a strong line between the two, that would be my point of difference. Mm-hmm. I, I I do think that what you're saying is basically true. I think there are people, 1 Corinthians 3, who will be in the kingdom, but yet saved so as by fire. Mm. I, and I think that's true. And in the life, their life is basically wasted. Mm. Uh, but I think to say that there's, there's a a second step in salvation when you cross a line and become an actual Christ follower I don't think I don't think there's a, a second line kind of thing that's uh, that's commonly done in in Keswick views of sanctification Jesus is Savior Jesus is the Lord type things and I think I absolutely believe that there's different levels of it I don't think there's a binary spot there's some uh, place later in life where I now have the experience where I 
have accepted Jesus as Savior, now I accept him as Lord. I don't think that metaphor works, though it's very common. Right. I do think there's an increasing level of discipleship, we call it sanctification, that's common. And a pastoral purpose is to help save people who become true followers of Jesus. That part I fully agree with. So you would say um, in the circle of salvation, if we if we go there, there would be a distinction between a believer and disciple. Someone saved, but then there's this next level of actual discipleship that then takes you to basically like living out like the real new way to be human. Um, and there might be some where, um, like, I, 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 I use this analogy in a youth sermon I taught one time, but there's some who basically cross through the door of salvation and then they just sit there and they don't actually walk. Um, and it's a tragic thing because, yes, like, they're saved from an eternity separated from Christ. But in this life, there's so much God has for them, so much potential and beauty and love and richness. But because they're just sitting in that door, they're so easily influenced by things outside the door. Is I mean, what do you think? Well, I, the I, the only difference again I would make is that every believer is in a sense a disciple from the beginning. Hmm, okay. The question is, do they follow that discipleship? So when I try to bring the gospel down to the simplest thing, I'm saying, do I like Jesus and do I want to be like Jesus? Right, right. And I think somebody that says, I want to go to heaven, <clears throat> but I don't want to be like Jesus— Something is seriously wrong at that point. Right. It may be that they're not saved. It may be just not a discipleship. So, I, again, I'm responding to, well, you're a believer and then a disciple. That two-stage, where it's two distinct stages is, is something I don't think is correct. I think you become a disciple at conversion, hmm. uh, but you may or may not be faithful to that discipleship. Right. You're forsaking your call to be a yep. disciple. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so then this would be a more harsh view from that um, than the next kind of theory, which would be the, you know, there's no such thing as a nominal Christian. Um, and I've, I've known people who've taken this stance. So it's basically, you know, the belief is that you cannot simply say a prayer to ask Jesus in your heart to be saved. You must actually make him Lord of your life. So, you know, if you take this to like the extreme conclusions, anyone under this theory who claims to be a Christian and yet lives in sin with no remorse or effort of repentance is not truly saved. So you know, you've got everybody in that circle that we talked about before, um, but then you've got you know the people who are just living with pride or, or racism, drunkenness, unrepented sin, sexual morality, to the point where there's you know just no desire to change those things. Um, the, in this under this theory, that isn't a real theory. It's just my own thoughts, I guess. But um, well, I've heard people say almost exactly this thing. Okay, yeah. So what do you think? Well, I think the problem is what they put in your red boxes that you have there is things they do not personally struggle with. Mm, wow. And all I want to do at that spot is let me take a look in your life and see what you're doing that should be in those red boxes that out of your Pharisaic pride you've taken off the list. Mm, mm. And if you actually follow this, mm-hmm. then nobody gets saved. Yeah, no, totally. Mm-hmm. Okay, because um, that that brings me to my third little video game character chart. So the problem <laughs> with the no such thing as a nominal Christian theory is who is actually saved here? You've got somebody who has friendship and they spend time with God, and yet they're sexually immoral, or somebody who prays just all the time, and yet they ignore a lot of Jesus's teachings yeah. and refuse to admit their sin is wrong. Somebody who's surrendered in some areas, and yet they have pride and willful sin. Um, yep. You know, the couple who follows many of the teachings of Jesus, and yet they're they're living together, and uh, they're making an effort to repent, but they, they're struggling and falling. I mean, I know people like this. I, I know friends and, and people who they desperately want to follow Jesus, and yet they're still kind of trapped in this place between yep. the old flesh and the, the, new, the new life, the new flesh. Yep. Yeah, and you put it more charitably than I do. Because what I see is the self-righteous person who I do everything right because my list of sins I follow, <clears throat> but you don't follow my list. You do things. And, but I, when I look at, that's exactly, I think, what Jesus is saying in the Strong Mount. You're saying, well, I don't commit adultery. I follow the Ten Commandments. And he says, let me talk to you about your lust life. Mm. And there's no commandment against lust. It's a matter of justice and mercy. Mm. And so I... You know, I, I see the, I see the, 
the helpless person, I think, well, they really ought to get their life in order. I don't think I should help them get their life in order. Mm. Those kinds of things, justice and mercy, they tend not to put on that list, but Jesus absolutely puts it on the list. Mm. On my list of acceptable and unacceptable sins, so to speak, mm. and that's the Pharisaic pride Jesus has a lot to say about, which is your your view here. So I'm completely agreeing with what you're saying. Okay. I just think there are people who are the nice church folk who are very confident in their nice church life and do not have a living relationship so, and where their mercy comes out. So that kind of brings my mind back to a verse that you brought up before, the idea of, um, you know, if, if we're in, I, I forget exactly the verse and I'm, I'm butchering the paraphrase, but it was to the effect <laughs> of, you know, if we're a new creation in Christ, we will not sin. That's correct. For Sean, yeah, but but here we're seeing this idea of there are all of these people, and, and we know just amongst the three of us that we are a mixture of loyalty to the Lord and disobedience that still lives within us. And, and I know a lot of people that look at that verse and they they tell one white lie and they go, "Oh my goodness, maybe I'm now out of the kingdom." Um, how do you respond to those fears that people might have and um, turn that and maybe that verse should just be like a super scary thing and it we need to feel that weight of it. But I, I normally hear teachers trying to mitigate the fear that comes from that verse. It's a good mm-hmm. question. The the it, the things that are interesting is what he puts in that list. If you keep reading and it's your attitude toward the hurting person. Uh, it's not how many times a day you pray and that sort of thing. <clears throat> the the answer that comes back to your question, it's a brilliant question, is to come back and say, my membership in the kingdom of God comes through my life connection with Jesus. I'm in the family, just like Cindy, when she joined our house and joined her family. She's absolutely completely a part of our family, but she's not living up to family standards in a number of areas. Mm. Uh, And in some places, she doesn't want to live up to the family standards because she's new in the family. Uh, But her loyalty and allegiance is to Sherry and me. And over a period of time, uh, she she continues that pattern of growth. Uh, The thing that raises the issue is when you're not following a pattern of growth and doing it out of rebellion, then something is wrong. It doesn't mean you're not a part of the family, but it, it is an indicator, and that's where your question is. It's an indicator something is wrong. Mm. So I think instead of just dismissing, well, I prayed the prayer, I'm good, it should be something is wrong here. Mm-hmm. I'm not living on to Jesus. So I read a book a few years ago uh, by a guy named Joshua Ryan Butler called The Skeletons oh. in God's Closet. Oh. Yeah, Josh is a good friend. Yeah, it's fantastic. And um, I, I loved his view on hell because he drew attention to something that I had never really heard put this way. And I was really glad I learned this as a youth pastor because it really bled into what I ended up teaching the kids. But this idea of hell as something that is not just a final destination, but a present reality. And so many people are so focused from being saved from that final destination that they they lose out on the reality that they need to be saved on a regular daily, weekly basis from the present reality of hell. And as, and as preachers, we need to like, for those of us who are pastors and preach, we need to not just focus on getting people out of the final destination, but getting them out of the hell that Satan's trying to create for them in this life, because you can have a saved soul, but Satan can be making your life on earth here, a living hell. If you refuse to submit to Jesus and make him Lord. And that's, that's, I mean, for some people, it's not as scary, you know, because the final destination hell just seems the worst. So if you're if you're saved from that, then it's just, oh, yeah, I can do whatever I want. But I've seen people, like I've known people who are Christians, but they, they're literally living in a hell that they've created for themselves. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's an important perspective. Very well said. <clears throat> the the thing that, that I find is so bad against about people is that God has so much more. Mm. Uh, and because of your hardness of heart, you're not experienced the more that he wants. And instead of focusing on the you're doing bad things type thing, mm. which is there, I, I like to focus, and where Josh goes too, uh, God has so much more for you. Mm. Let's step into that. I mean, you're, you're struggling right now. Yeah, you are, but 
God has so much more for you. That's what we call gospel center transformation here at Western Seminary. Mm. Uh, and I was just talking with a woman yesterday uh, who has a really, really dark past. Mm. Uh, she's the wife of one of our students. And uh, that was the thing that really works for her is recognizing, yeah, I've still got stuff from my dark past, but God has so much more for me. Mm. And when her pastor wants to point out her sin, she gets defensive. But when he paints the glory of what God has for her, she her love pops out and says, okay, I'm going to struggle through this stuff. Mm-hmm. And she just articulated so well. I mean, she's living a great life now, but that's the picture. God has so much more. Yeah. Uh, so that focusing on where we're headed and God's help to get there, I think, is a good way to do that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you got to get the hell out of your life. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Josh's phrase, right. and I like it. Yeah, it's good. Can I ask you, um, this is going to be just a, like, intentionally uh, inflammatory question, but, uh, ah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about Nazis for a second. So this is just, I'm just playing around with some of these things we're talking about, but okay. from as an American, uh, you know, you grew up watching war, war movies and, you know, it's just, yeah, Nazis are basically, they were just demons that took human form, like, they're all... You know, the idea is they're all rotting in hell, um, you know. But we, I, I know just from studying um, you know, the religious culture of Germany at the time, many of the German soldiers under Hitler were Lutherans, and they went to church, and they would profess Jesus. And so you've got an army filled with all these terrible things happening, these atrocities towards the Jewish people and just the, the world as a whole during World War II. But then you have people who would be going to church, and I, I mean, I— I would imagine that there was genuine disciples in there. Um, but then you've got the conflict of, you know, nationalism and duty to country. And there's, I'm sure there were some people serving who were fully on board with what Hitler was doing. And then other people who were like, I don't agree with this, but I feel like I need to protect my family and my country. So, um, you know, are we going to see Nazis in heaven? You know, is, is a question I would ask. Um, can you be a Nazi and be saved, you know, in World War II era. And and then this is a question that just lumps on with it. It's the same thing. But, you know, you've got um, in early American history, people who are going to church, they're church folks, they're religious, they're followers of Jesus, and yet they're owning slaves and, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, and I think can, it's... Can, it's- it's worth yeah. noting we don't recommend people try this. Like, this is not the, <laughs> hey, we said you could be a Nazi and go to heaven, yeah. so go for it. Like, we're not saying Gary says you can that. have slaves. Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, well, have you ever worked in a union shop that's pretty close to slavery? Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them. Yeah. Uh, my, I've never worked in a union shop, but my son did. Wow. And the union rules in many ways were there i think for him in particular job he was in it was not far from slavery wow. now, he wasn't bought and sold but it was an indentured service mm-hmm. which is a lot of what biblical slavery is an indentured service so those analogies the your nazi question is a really really good question because nazi is an ideology mm-hmm. and at the to be true nazi you have to be a himmler type person right and but many, many, many German soldiers who were actually involved in the war mm-hmm. were not Nazis. Mm. They were Germans. Mm. And there's a difference between those two. And you can go back and look at the intellectual history of World War II and see that. Mm. You have some who are brilliant, the Bonhoeffers of the day, right. who, and we all think, I'd be a Bonhoeffer. Actually, I'm not sure that's true because I look at what people are doing here. Mm. There were a lot of godly men who were in the, in the war in the, as soldiers for the German nation hmm. who were doing horrors. Yeah, um, My guess is there were probably people at the, there were guards at Treblinka. Hmm. And uh, I can't imagine, in my mind, I can't imagine taking Jews off the trains and escorting them into the, I mean, I, I can't imagine doing that. Hmm. Uh, but I, I don't doubt that there were some true followers of Jesus who were doing that, and they were deceived. Yeah. And that's Satan's fundamental thing, is to deceive us into believing that we're doing something that's for the kingdom. Yeah. And we do things out of a deep deception. So, yeah, to answer your question, I think people could be soldiers at Treblinka and be a true follower of Jesus. But I hope to God that they would be in their spirit saying, this is just not right. Mm. Yeah. No, that raises up a really incredible point to me that's applicable for just our own culture in that, 
because for some people, God and country is so tied together, their religious identity is so tied to their national identity that there could fully have been people, Christians, in World War II on the German side thinking, I'm doing this for God. Like, I'm fighting oh, in this war. I've, I've met some of them. For God. Wow. Mm. I've wow. met some of them. Uh, now, they would look back now and say, well, I realized that a lot of what was happening was wrong, but we mm. were fighting for our German identity and nationhood mm. as opposed to enemies who were out to destroy our nationhood. Wow. And they weren't thinking about burning Jews. They were thinking about protecting their national identity from people who were trying to kill it. Mm. I, now I, my pacifist stuff kicks in here because I, I am, uh, I'm not a pacifist. I am a pacifist. Right. I think the difference between force and violence is a huge distinction and very important. Hmm. But when I look at what, when my own thing, when I was being drafted in Vietnam, I, I never ended up having to go in. But I, my friends did, and I had to think, what would I do if I were drafted and went in and were in boot camp, and I was, I would not get my supper unless I would with passion say, kill, kill, kill. Mm. And I'm to the core of my being, I could not do that. I don't care if my supper on the line. Mm. I don't know what would have happened to me. I really don't. Because mm. wow. I'm, I'm not a pacifist in the legal sense, because mm. I would be forced to stop violence. Uh, and I just, fortunately, I never had to do that. But I, that's the kind of moral conundrum that we find ourselves in. I know good and godly people who would come in and they would scream, kill, kill them, you know. Right. With their supper, yeah, and their followers of Jesus. Wow, that's 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 people from my era. Now, the, that level of militarism and violence is not a part of the military culture so much these days. Hmm. But it was that's it good. was in 1968. Hmm. So that's a that's another whole can of worms we could do a whole episode on. But yeah, I, yeah. I want to point the listeners to um, Gary. You've shared in length your perspectives on the, uh, Jesus's ethic of nonviolence and the topic of yep. nonviolence altogether with. Was it John Mark Homer? Bridgetown Church yeah. did a series yeah. on, they did a whole series on nonviolence. So they had you That's on, right. Tim Mackey, some other people. Um, yeah, so, Boyd. yeah, look that up, uh, yeah. listeners, if you want to yeah, hear more. Just go to bridgetown.church, I think, is their current website. But if you look up uh, Bridgetown, it'll pop up because it's a very popular church. Yeah. And, uh, and I did that podcast with John Mark and Bethany. Great. Um, well, I think it's almost time for us to go, and um, I had one more question um, that could probably be answered pretty quickly, but Brian, before I do, do you have a final one for Gary? I did have one, um, and I, I think it, it's fitting at the end because it's about potentially the end of a salvation, um, and, and this is the most personal one, not because I want to hand in my salvation, but it, it's the one I'm most currently wrestling with. Um, I loved your, your sports analogy. Sports analogies always work for me. Um, the idea of you, you were a part of one team, you were scoring points for, for the, the Seahawks, and now you're a chief. Um, you know, just the way that you can, can move between the two. Can you go back to the wrong team? Ooh. Ooh. Let's, just, let's just end with that. That's the last that's question. It. Have a great that's day. a good that's one. Really good so, and that's that's essentially the can you lose your salvation yeah. question, why, Brian? Yeah. Mm. Well, I can answer that question. You can't lose your salvation in the sense I lose my keys. <laughs> uh, the question is, can I throw away my salvation? Mm-hmm. And that's a different, but we, that's much more than we can do here in a brief. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that to me is just the, I, I, it's one of those things where I, I hear so many people talking about the security of salvation. Yep. And, I, and I believe you can be secure in your salvation. And it's, it's a difficult thing for me to think through because I can't, I don't feel like I found a verse that says like, see, people can throw it away. But I feel like I see so much, particularly in the New Testament epistles of, but you must continue on and you must mm. keep the faith and you must stay rooted and you need to stay yeah. grounded. And it's like, well, these warnings seem like they're here for a reason because there's real danger Absolutely. if we don't yep. stay rooted and we don't continue on. Yep. Yep. Another episode. <laughs> well, can I go back to the fish thing for a second? Yeah. Just to, just maybe just for my sake and for the listener's sake, you can tell me if this makes sense. I'm not a sports guy. Um, I played eighth grade basketball and touched the ball twice the entire season. So sports analogies don't work with me, but apparently <laughs> fish analogies do for some reason. But um, so if you're that fish and you're outside of the stream, that's where that's where you start. You're outside of the stream of life. And then you 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 choose to follow Jesus, you receive, you respond to his sovereign, you know, pulling towards you, and then 
you you respond to it. So then now you're back in the stream and there's life and there might be moments where you're swimming in the stream and then you pop your fish head back up to breathe the old atmosphere. You know, these are the moments that we sin. Um, but that's not losing your salvation. You're still in the stream. But if the fish decides, like, I don't want to be in the stream anymore, I want to jump back up on the shore, that seems to be possible in my mind. It seems like you can't lose the salvation by being in the stream and breathing the atmosphere. But then if you make the choice, I don't want to be a part of the stream anymore, and you remove yourself, that that seems like it's a possible thing. Yeah. Well, that, there's a lot of discussion around that. <laughs> okay, we'll have to do part two. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, my my simple answer, I think if you are genuinely born again, uh, that you won't fundamentally want to jump out of the stream. Mm-hmm. But that's way too simple an answer because there are people who sure appear to be outside the stream. Yeah, uh, There's a lot we got to work with on that. So complicated, but um, we just really appreciate you being willing to like wrestle through mm-hmm. this stuff. Thank you us. so much for yeah. this. Thank you, man. <laughs> uh, thanks, Gary. Um, yep. We'll definitely have to do this again sometime. So. Sounds good to me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode. Wow. What an amazing discussion. I learned so much from Gary. Seriously, he is a champ. I'm so thankful he was willing to take the time to record with us, to put up with my silly chart, and to deal with all of our questions. What a blessing. Wow. That was awesome. I'm, I'm just, I'm blown away by that discussion. If you enjoyed what Gary had to say and you'd like to know more about him or get more content from him, I would highly suggest Googling him. If you go to Google and you type in Gary Brashears, you can find tons of classes and books and sermons. You can find his website that has tons of resources. And I would also highly recommend typing his name into any podcast app. And there are tons of other episodes from other podcasts that Gary has dropped in on to share his knowledge and wisdom. I would highly recommend checking those out. If you like our show, please take a minute to review it on Apple Podcast or iTunes. Seriously, every review helps so much. It gets us exposure. It helps people see what we're doing, what we're all about. It means the world to us to know that we're making an impact and that we're helping people. So please take some time to leave us a review. Check out our website, www.goodlion.io or our Instagram account at goodlion.io for updates, not just on our show, but all of the different shows on the Good Lion Podcast Network. This show is produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my wonderful co-host and dear friend, Brian Higgins. We are a ministry of the Calvary Global Network, or CGN for short. If you like what we do and you want to support the mission of Good Lion, to build up the body of Christ through Christ-centered, thoughtful Christian content. You can support us through our website, goodlion.io slash support, or you can check out our Patreon account, patreon.com slash goodlionpod. Seriously, anything helps. We put it towards the show and the network to make it as best as it possibly can be. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show. Thanks for supporting us. Thank you so much for being a part of what we're doing with the Good Lion Podcast Network. It means the world to us. You guys are amazing. I can't wait for the next episode. So until then, this is Aaron Salvato signing off. I'll see you next time.